From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Epilepsy is a central nervous system or brain disorder that causes seizures as well as periods of unusual behavior and sometimes even loss of consciousness. It can be a challenging condition to live with, but there have been a number of advances in the care and treatment of epilepsy that do help many people live symptom-free. Also on the program, improving outcomes is a 21st century healthcare mantra, but getting better results is easier said than done. We'll talk with an expert about raising the outcomes bar. And the tiny parathyroids in your neck, they might be the body's least talked about glands, but when they don't work right, every cell in your body can be affected. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Temporary confusion, a staring spell, tingling or numbness, uncontrollable jerking of the arms, legs, or body. All of these are signs and symptoms of epilepsy. Each year, about 150,000 people in this country are diagnosed with epilepsy. That's enough to fill three Major League Baseball stadiums. And while it can be distressing to learn that you have epilepsy, there are several effective treatments that allow many people with the condition to live normal lives. Here to bring us up to date on the diagnosis and the treatment of epilepsy is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Gregory Casino. Welcome to the program, Dr. Casino. Good to see you. Nice to see you, Tom. I think you've been here almost as long as I have, so it's good to see that someone like you is still around. Thank you very much. So let's talk about this condition, epilepsy. I know you've been on this program on multiple occasions. We always learn so much from you. But describe for us what the disease really is, what the condition really is. So, Tom, epilepsy or a seizure disorder, and those terms would be synonymous, uh, is a very common chronic neurologic condition, probably affects over 2 million Americans Uh, And we know that uh, epilepsy can present at any age, from the very young to the very old. It is a brain or neurologic problem. It may be associated with an underlying neurologic disorder such as stroke, tumor, or head trauma. But in many cases, we do not know the etiology or cause for a seizure disorder. There are multiple different types of seizures. And as you alluded to, in some patients, it may be staring or behavioral arrest. It may be confusion. And most people, when they think of a seizure, they think of the tonic-clonic or grand mal convulsion, which is the most obvious seizure type with loss of consciousness and repetitive jerking of the arms and legs. So basically a little less than 1% of the population affected by uh, epilepsy. You said 2 million people. You know, I think that uh, even different than 1% is the current information from the Institute of Medicine. 1 in 26 Americans will develop a seizure disorder in their lifetime. Every four minutes, an individual in the United States is diagnosed with epilepsy. 10% of Americans will experience at least one seizure during their lifetime. And we think the diagnosis of epilepsy is probably underestimated. So 1% might be a general number, but as many as 4% of certain population groups, such as those over 65 years of age, will develop a seizure disorder. And most of the people that we see who have a seizure disorder, it's of unknown cause. But you also mentioned that epilepsy can come on after a stroke, a tumor, or head trauma. That's correct. A careful neurologic history may disclose an underlying medical condition, as you mentioned. Uh, It may be even a malformation of development in the child's brain 
head trauma, meningitis, encephalitis, all of these are predisposing medical conditions that can increase the risk of a seizure disorder. In the group that used to be called idiopathic, where we didn't know the cause, we now find there may be etiologies that are obvious related to genetic factors that were not previously diagnosed. What about, you You mentioned children, uh, children that have epilepsy when they're younger or have some sort of seizure disorder and then grow out of it. Is that possible or what's happening with those patients? At any age, not just children, an individual may present with a seizure or recurrent seizures and then enter a seizure remission. This may be related to factors that we don't understand or could be because of anti-epileptic drug therapy. Not uncommonly, when patients enter a seizure remission, they may stay seizure-free. In some of those patients, their seizure tendency is sufficiently reduced so that we can consider anti-epileptic drug withdrawal. We try to segregate the different types of seizure disorders into benign and, if you will, malignant. And most individuals present with a manageable seizure disorder, perhaps with fewer isolated seizures that responds favorably to medication. But you're correct. There are individuals who will have a period of their time where they have an increase in seizure tendency and then subsequently become seizure-free. And what actually is going on inside the brain when someone has a seizure? It's an electrical storm. Probably the most uh, simple analogy would be a lightning bolt uh, during a thunderstorm where a population of brain cells are synchronously uh, depolarizing or causing excitation. And every minute we sit here, we have brain cells that are engaged in a variety of activities for speech, hearing, and movement. Uh, In concert, an abnormal set of brain cells begin to have a functional abnormality, and that focal or region of the brain is what accounts for their symptoms. So if the area of the brain is involved with speech, the person may have speech arrest. If it's involved with movement of the right arm, they may have shaking of the right arm. Usually it's very transient. Most seizures last less than one to two minutes in duration. Uh, And not uncommonly, the patient may be either aware or have altered awareness during the seizure, but it may be variable from one event to the next. So an electrical storm in an isolated part of the brain. Correct. And there are networks in the brain now that connect one part of the brain to the other, so a seizure can begin in a localized region and then spread, if you will, to both sides of the brain, and that's what produces the generalized tonic-clonic seizure or convulsion. How do you diagnose epilepsy? I think it really begins with a careful medical and neurologic history. Many times the patient uh, or collateral information from an eyewitness, a family or friend, may uh, disclose information that would strongly suggest the patient's experience in a seizure. Uh, We think of a seizure as being a part of a seizure disorder, and there may be more than one type of seizure in an individual patient. Uh, Other diagnostic studies that are very helpful would be the EEG recording and neuroimaging studies. Uh, The EEG is usually an outpatient procedure lasting approximately 45 minutes to 60 minutes that records the spontaneous electrical activity of the brain. A normal EEG does not exclude a seizure disorder, but it may be very helpful if it's abnormal. And the most important imaging study of the brain now is MRI head because this may show a structural abnormality in the brain that accounts for the seizure disorder. You said that the history is very important in making the diagnosis, and I know that the, the, the symptoms and the signs are many and varied, but what are most typical? The sort of uh, symptoms that we hear from patients or the observers, for example, the most common seizure type in the adult is the focal seizure with altered awareness. The patient variably may have an aura or warning at which time they're awake, but they have a typical sensation that comes on that indicates they're going to have a seizure. It can be a rising sensation in their abdomen. It can be a feeling of dread and doom, 
a sense of panic or anxiety. That's a very brief period of time, like seconds, prior to loss of consciousness. And what we may hear from the family is the eyes are open, the person's staring's like the lights are on and nobody's at home, like a deer in the headlights. They may have movements of their lips or tongue. They may have fumbling movements of their hands. And usually a very brief clinical event, such as one to two minutes. After that, they have a period of confusion that may last 15 to 30 minutes. And not uncommonly, the patient may be unaware of the clinical symptoms he or she experiences during the seizure, and the observer fills in the blanks by what they do during the event. And these sort of phraseologies, staring, not responding, uh, lip-smacking, uh, like the lights around and nobody's at home, are very characteristic of what we may hear in a focal seizure. During a tonic-clonic or grand mal seizure, uh, oftentimes the first time an observer sees it, they think the patient's having a cardiac arrest or some life-threatening emergency. Uh, they may have a vocalization. The eyes may roll back in their head. They may have stiffening of the arms, hence the term tonic, and then repetitive jerking, the term clonic, usually lasting, again, about one to two minutes in duration. That may be associated with tongue biting and loss of bladder control. Are there any uh, usual triggers, things that bring uh, a seizure on for people? It's like variable, Tom, from one patient to the next. I think there's a few constant features we hear. Sleep deprivation, stress, missed anti-epileptic drug medication, uh, many women have seen a correlation between their menstrual cycle and the seizure activity, which may relate to changes in estrogen and progesterone. And other patients will indicate that travel, illness, and fever may all be seizure precipitants. You know, the one thing we don't want to forget to talk about uh, as we go into our next segment and talk uh, about the treatment of epilepsy, and that is what someone should do, what a layperson should do if they see someone who they think who is having a grand mal seizure. Yes, and that's an excellent question, Tom, because I think that has led to many unfortunate circumstances. Circumstances. If the patient has a grand molar tonic-clonic seizure, the patient should be put in a position where they're safe. Oftentimes, it may be lying on the floor, such as in an office, loosening the collar of their shirt or tie, rolling the patient on the side so that the secretions will roll out of their mouth and they won't aspirate into the region of the lung. Do not hold the arms and legs forcibly. That may injure the patient. Never stick anything into the mouth. And a concern has always been that they may swallow their tongue or somehow have an adverse effect because of the a seizure activity like that. But you don't want to do anything to injure the patient. And then ask for help, especially if the seizure goes on beyond two minutes. Then in some cases, you have to call 911. All right. We are with neurologist and epilepsy expert, Dr. Gregory Casino of the Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about treatment, including medical, surgical, and even medical marijuana. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest, an epilepsy expert and a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Gregory Casino. So we've talked about what epilepsy is, the most common signs and symptoms. Uh, we've talked about how you make the diagnosis based on the history. And you said the two most important tests were an EEG and an MRI scan. That's correct. But I think even before that is the neurologic history, and oftentimes that gets missed because that has important diagnostic information. All right, now we <clears> want <throat> to talk about treatment. And is it true in general that you can control seizure activity in the majority of patients? That's correct. Uh, if you look at patients who present with seizure disorders and follow them in the course of therapy, approximately two-thirds of patients will be seizure-free on their initial anti-epileptic drug medication. And the most effective medicine is their early drugs, the first and 
second drug uh, that is utilized. The difference in older and newer drugs is not so much efficacy, but maybe either safety or anti-epileptic drug side effects. So even the older drugs may be just as effective in a newly diagnosed patient. Use one medication intelligently, increase the dose as needed and tolerated, and the majority of newly diagnosed patients become seizure-free. Unfortunately, there's a cohort of patients, probably in the range of 20% or 30%, who have drug-resistant epilepsy, that it does not respond well to medication, and the initial trials are highly prognostic in terms of the response to medical therapy. And then what do we do? So I think intelligently you look at the medication that was used, realizing that a major issue that's really become uh, obvious in the literature is lack of medication compliance. And even though when we ask patients, do you take the medication, uh, invariably the answer is yes. Uh, studies have suggested when you've done careful monitoring of medication intake and anti-epileptic drug levels, that probably a third of our patients suffer from recurrent medication noncompliance, and that can undermine therapy. So we have to make sure that they're taking the medication correctly. We have to make sure they're using the correct medication. Uh, it was very easy at one time when you had two or three major drugs to pick off the shelf. Now you have maybe 30, 36 medications. And many of these drugs have a different spectrum of action. So if you're using the wrong drug for a specific seizure type, a lack of response to therapy may be the fact that the incorrect medication was used. So are they taking the medication? Are they using the correct medication? And then not getting restrained by drug levels. We treat the patient, not the drug level. And it's very important that we use a, one medication intelligently. But if they fail two or three anti-epileptic drug medications, then we call that drug resistant. And in those patients, we do a comprehensive evaluation, which may include inpatient EEG monitoring and epilepsy monitoring unit to confirm the diagnosis of a seizure disorder, to classify seizure type, and see what factors may be precipitating their seizure activity. Uh, and unfortunately, we find it's a complicated world, but a significant number of patients who have been diagnosed as epilepsy are found in epilepsy monitoring units that have some other condition that's not a seizure disorder. So we have to intelligently make these decisions. Drug-resistant epilepsy, there are a variety of therapies available, anti-epileptic drug medications, both old and new, electronic stimulation using vagus nerve stimulation. And, of and, course, and what does that involve? Is that a uh, surgical procedure? It is. Vagus nerve stimulation is the only form of electronic stimulation that's been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. There's many that are investigational that are being looked at for intracranial stimulation. In the, in the brain. That's correct. But the, uh, the vagus nerve stimulation specifically involves stimulating the left vagus nerve in the neck, uh, which may reduce seizure tendency in patients with a specific type of epilepsy called focal seizures. But this is really a palliative therapy and not a curative therapy. And what else? Well, the most important curative form of therapy for patients with drug-resistant epilepsy would be epilepsy surgery. And by surgery, I mean localizing the area of seizure onset and having a neurosurgeon remove that region of the brain that accounts for the seizure activity. Yeah, it sounds pretty interesting. It sounds pretty, I mean, obviously not straightforward, but if you can get rid of the problem by taking out that portion of the brain that uh, where the seizure occurs, pretty, pretty neat. Uh, and it's a little complicated, Tom, because if you look at ideal surgical candidates, that would typically be patients with focal seizures of temporal lobe origin. Uh, about three out of four of those patients are seizure-free after surgery, not 100%. And we always have to be concerned about adverse effects in language and memory. I'd like to bring up medical marijuana because as that conversation is being had across the country and here in Minnesota, how does that help? So medical marijuana has more, unfortunately, questions than it does answers. There's been few in the way of clinical trials that have been satisfactory to confirm the effectiveness or the safety. Uh, what has been presented as recently as the American Epilepsy Society meeting December 
2015, uh, is that in some individuals who have received medical marijuana, and we tend not to use the term marijuana because that oftentimes is thought to be THC, which is psychoactive, that is different than the substance that may be effective for seizures. But cannabidiol, or CBD, appears to be the compound that may be most effective in reducing seizure tendency. And is that in oil? It comes in a variety of different, including a tablet or oil. That's okay. correct. Um, and that has been shown in uh, populations that have been tested many times in children with very devastating syndromes called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome or Dravet syndrome to reduce seizures. And the numbers are modest in terms of the number of patients who have been evaluated. It tends to reduce seizures. It's a palliative form of therapy. We are actually engaged here at Mayo Clinic in an investigational study looking at CBD in patients with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, both pediatric and adult, and the study is ongoing at the present time. But it's important we answer questions about how efficacious this is and how safe it is because in studies that have been done looking at a variety of different medical marijuanas, it may also have adverse effects. It may have drug interactions that are important as well. It is not yet FDA approved for the treatment of epilepsy. So we've got about a minute remaining, and I want to ask you about women's issues in, in epilepsy, with particularly re- with regard to, uh, to pregnancy. So this is a very important topic right now because of concerns regarding safety in pregnancy. We tell individuals that over 90% will have a successful pregnancy outcome. That means the child will not have any neurological or medical problems related to the seizure disorder or the treatment. There are certain anti-epileptic drugs, however, that should not be used in women with epilepsy or considering pregnancy. Uh, Drugs such as valproic acid has been shown to increase the risk of malformations in these children, autism, and cognitive problems if they've been exposed to the drug during pregnancy. So the woman needs to discuss with her physician her goals about pregnancy. We need to know the type of seizure disorder the woman has to select the safest medication. We prefer monotherapy, one drug, uh, with multivitamins with folic acid supplementation because folic acid is important. They may require high-risk obstetrical care. And in some instances, depending on the medication, we may need to monitor anti-epileptic drug levels closely. But again, over 90% will have successful pregnancy outcomes. And speaking of being pregnant, is there a genetic risk, a genetic link in epilepsy? There is, and it's important because I think we're finding that some of these cases have previously been called idiopathic epilepsy, probably have a genetic predisposition. It may be a spontaneous mutation. So the fact that your family members do not have epilepsy does not mean that you may not have a genetic epileptic syndrome. You know, you have done such a beautiful job covering the whole topic. Dr. Gregory Casino, neurologist, epilepsy expert at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, everyone, doctors and patients alike, want the best outcomes from health care. But the devil is in the details when it comes to improving outcomes. Co-host Dr. Sanj Kakar joins me as we talk about how to make it happen. And the lowly parathyroids, despite their tiny size, these glands in your neck play a critical role in regulating calcium in your cells. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. There is nothing like baby soft skin, but more than 10% of all little ones develop eczema. Eczema is a really itchy, um, scaly, red condition of the skin. Mayo Clinic pediatric dermatologist Dr. Mega Tollefson says eczema can erupt anywhere, but in infants and children is most commonly found on the cheeks, the folds of the elbows, and the back of the knees. 
How do you treat it? A daily bathing can be really useful in children that have eczema, as long as you're moisturizing right away. If you use a bland, fragrance-free cream that's thick enough to stand up a spoon, you can seal in moisture from the daily bath and improve condition of the skin. If you think your baby has eczema, talk to your health care provider to make sure, especially for newborns who may not benefit from frequent baths. Plus, severe cases may require topical medication. I'm Vivian Williams, and for more health news, visit at the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Improving how healthcare is delivered in this country and improving outcomes in the bargain is one of the major challenges facing healthcare professionals in the 21st century. It doesn't matter much if life-saving treatments exist, whether they're new surgical techniques or more effective vaccine protocols, if they aren't readily available to those who need them. Joining us to talk about improving healthcare outcomes is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Veronique Roger. Dr. Roger is also an epidemiologist and medical director of the Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Roger. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Roger, uh, the center is something that's very exciting to, in today's um, uh, healthcare environment, and, spe- and we're lucky at Mayo Clinic to have this. Can you talk to us about the ethos behind it? What brought this on? Sure. Um, you know, I think the the Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery was created in 2011, really to study and optimize clinical practice, and. Its creation uh, is really rests into the vision of Mayo Clinic for delivering care since its creation more than 150 years ago now, where the Mayo brothers recognized the need to do research on the practice in order to improve the practice. So that was really the the uh, idea behind the center, and we were very fortunate that uh, the idea of doing that, the idea of embedding engineering principles in healthcare, uh, was embraced by the Kern family that uh, supported. Uh, the, you know, provided the support uh, to create the center. You know, the center really uh, aims at um, bringing together the practicing clinicians and the scientists, some of them medical doctors, but some of them sci- pure scientists, uh, bringing them together to address the questions the best way. So, for example, as a clinician, I'm a practicing cardiologist, I may wonder how to best uh, minimize the number of readmissions to the hospital after a heart attack, for example, which is one of the domains, if you will, that were held accountable by the government to have uh, a low, as, as low as possible a rate of readmission. But it may be difficult for me as a doctor practicing in the hospital to understand all the components that play into a patient coming back to the emergency room and being readmitted. There are issues related to outpatient care, issues related to family and social support, issues related to what we call in broad terms social determinants of health. That is something that practicing doctors sometimes are not trained to address. And even if they are, their bandwidth at times is limited, and so they need partnership with a scientist or or a specialist that will understand this and will work in a team to figure out the way to address those issues. So that's one example. So it's really not about, um, you know, who can join or not join. I mean, we're all part of the same adventure of improving healthcare in the United States and the world, and we feel very strongly 
then we need to bring together the clinicians, the practicing doctors, and practicing healthcare providers, nurse practitioners, etc., nurses, with uh, the scientists that can help address those issues. And I think, Tracy, that's one of the real exciting things about this. Uh, as, as physicians, we traditionally work with scientists, but that's about dealing with how to answer a scientific question, not to how to deliver the best care to our patients, which we thought for 150 years we were doing anyway. So now we've changed the shift where we have scientists working with us on a day-to-day basis. So, Dr. Roger, um, when it comes to quality, how, how would you define quality to a, to a patient? If I'm sitting at home and, and I'm going to Mayo Clinic, how, how is this going to improve the quality of healthcare I'm receiving? Well, I think it's an interesting question. I think uh, the way to define quality is certainly multifaceted. Uh, there are recognized quality metrics around the United States. We, we have quality metrics for cardiac care. We have quality metrics for orthopedic surgery. We have quality metrics for a lot of uh, uh, domains of expertise and interventions. But that's only one layer. And it's certainly important that we communicate to patients how we check, if you will, on those quality metrics, and that the patients gradually gain an understanding of what this means. But the conversation shouldn't stop there. And as a matter of fact, if I'm talking to a patient about quality, also I'm going to want to ask the patient, what is quality of care for you? What does it mean to you uh, to come to Mayo Clinic to get, you know, your hip replaced, to get your, you know, some abdominal surgery, to get breast surgery? I mean, what, what is it that you seek in care, do you, for example, people who have an orthopedic limitation will want presumably to walk. They will want to be able to walk without pain. So that's one of the outcomes or sort of future, um, how can I say this? I mean, future uh, um, uh, consequences of a procedure that will matter to a patient to come for that given procedure. For a patient who comes with advanced cancer, being alive in a certain number of years and being able to attend and participate to, um, you know, life milestones for loved ones and family is going to be a very important outcome, a very important consequence of healthcare. So we need to for sure engage patients and families in those conversations above and beyond the compulsory quality metrics that we have to deal with at the national level. So that's when you say outcomes, that's what you mean, is what purpose are you coming to this institution for? That's your outcome? Right. And how can we guarantee you care that is safe? that meets national quality metrics and meets your needs as a patient. The center also um, is leading the way in how we work more efficiently, uh, physicians in practice. Are there examples of projects that the center is spearheading at the moment that you can talk about? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, uh, you know, again, the efficiency in healthcare is something that Mayo Clinic has been focusing on uh, since 1920, which were the days of Dr. Henry Plummer, who was an endocrinologist and an engineer, and who really led us and, and sort of inscribed in the Mayo Clinic's DNA, if you will, the um, the um, uh, appetite for in- embedding engineering principles in healthcare. So we've always done that. And patients and colleagues from around the world who come here recognize that immediately and getting care at Mayo is that it's uh, compassionate and patient-centered, but also very efficient. So this has been part of our ethos, if you will, for, ye- for years. Now, as healthcare gains in complexity, we need to be a bit more purposeful now than in 1920 to make it happen. And so an example of a project like this is a project that the center is working on in partnership with the emergency department at Mayo Clinic, where the emergency department is being completely remodeled, equipped now with 21st century technology, including the way to track 
the flow of patients and providers around the emergency department. And so that is a project that is complex and requires having a partnership between engineers and providers. Providers to tell us what their goals are and what they want to achieve, and engineers to analyze the data coming from disability to track the movement of people, providers and patients, around the emergency department. So that's an example of one project that we're doing. So the engineers are there camping out in the emergency room watching how patients are put through the system? Right. I mean, the engineers, they may not be camping in the emergency room, but the engineers are, uh, we have a team, that uh, includes the same number of engineers uh, and analysts as well as providers, and they work together. They meet weekly, and this project has been going on now for over a year. They meet weekly uh, to review data and decide how um, to interpret what they see in terms of this tracking. Once they understand, for example, where the bottlenecks might be, I mean, all of us have uh, at some point in our lives, most of us anyway, have been in the emergency room either as a patient or, uh, you know, as a as a family member of a patient, and we all know that people complain about waiting. They wonder if it's safe to wait at times. They, uh, you know, wonder about what, why is it taking so long to get to a test, etc. And so this technique will enable us to track what happens within the emergency room setting and design intervention. If we see a bottleneck at such and such point, then we'll be able to say, how, if, how, how would it go? What would happen if we change that? And that relies on complex techniques that we call modeling or forecasting to try to say, if this happens, what would happen with that? If we make this intervention, what would happen? And so that's really uh, um, one of the projects that uh, we are very excited about that we're working on right now. So studying the way that medicine works for patients is what you're all about and how to make it better. That's exactly right. Well, thanks, Dr. Roger, for joining us to talk about improving health care outcomes. Dr. Roger is a cardiologist at Mayo Clinic. She's also medical director of the Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, you don't hear much about them, but when your parathyroid glands aren't working right, you can have problems throughout your body. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our bodies are finely tuned organisms, and critical to keeping things running smoothly are our hormones. These chemicals are produced by various glands in several parts of our bodies. One such set of glands are the parathyroids. There are four of them, and they are located just behind the thyroid gland, that butterfly-shaped structure that sits at the front and center of your neck. Despite their location and name, the parathyroid glands have nothing to do with the function of the thyroid, but they do play a role in regulating the level of calcium in the blood. And calcium, as we'll learn, is critical to the normal operation of every cell in your body. Here to explain the importance of the parathyroid glands and how parathyroid problems are treated is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Robert Wormers. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wormers. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Uh, It's a bad name if it doesn't have anything to do with the thyroid to call it the parathyroid. (laughs) <laughs> right. It's kind of the uh, Rodney Dangerfield of endocrinology in that uh, many people come and think they have a thyroid problem, but they're sent to us, and their main issue are their parathyroid glands. So it's actually a very, very common disorder to have a parathyroid uh, disorder. So where is it? where does it go wrong? People think they have a thyroid problem, but it's actually parathyroid. What is the difference? Right. So the most common problem is overactivity of the parathyroid glands. So, and that's called uh, primary hyperparathyroidism when it's a a disease of the parathyroid glands. And usually it's just one of the four glands that's the problem about 90% of the time. Um, 
about 15% of the time, 10 to 15% of the time, it can be all four of the glands that are involved. But the disease is very common, especially in women after menopause and as they age. And so you said it's the hyperthyroid? It's overactivity. So usually it's a benign tumor, not cancer, of one of the parathyroid glands. That's the problem. But I thought that a hyperthyroid would be the thyroid issue. How is it the parathyroid then? Right. So para is that Latin root that means around. So these are the four glands that surround the parathyroid gland. And 80% of the time they do occur right by the parathyroid gland. But they're, you know, they're, they're the size of a grain of rice, so they're very small glands. But I always tell my patients, you know, you have a single brain, you have two kidneys, but you have four parathyroid glands. So usually <laughs> if you have four of something in your body, it's probably important. And indeed, if we went and took either one of your parathyroid glands out with surgery, uh, which happens sometimes with thyroid surgery because that's collateral damage, which is the most common cause of low parathyroid hormone, it's a very, very serious situation. And uh, you can die if we would remove all four of those within a very short time period uh, without any backup. The body relies on them. There's, uh, they have a lot of functions. 99% of the function of calcium in your body is actually for the bone, to maintain the bone mineral. And that's where your main calcium reservoir is. But the calcium in your body has that 1% has a pretty important function, and that has to do with uh, nerve function, with vascular function, with cardiac function, and so, and also with cell, the way cells talk to each other. So that small part of calcium is critically important in maintaining your normal health, and your body will do whatever it can to protect you when you lose that calcium. So your bones don't suffer right away. Your bones, you know, that's a different issue, but those critical nerve and vascular functions uh, are the ones that need to have calcium maintained within a very narrow range. And most people, their calcium is maintained within a very, very narrow range. So, Dr. Wormers, do most patients come to see you with a lump in their throat, or what are the symptoms of primary hyperparathyroidism? The most common symptom is nothing. So mm. your doctor does a blood test, and maybe because you have a condition where they suspect you could have this, uh, like osteoporosis is the most common thing, but it's usually just blood work, and we find it routinely. And in fact, here in Rochester in 1974, when we added automated chemistry panels, is when we found a big spike in the disease. So these chemistry panels are where you do 10 blood tests just routinely on people, and it's called a chem panel. So the chem panels include simple things like serum, sodium, potassium, kidney function, creatinine. And they decided at the very end to add in, they needed one more test, they had nine tests. They said, well, let's add, let's add a calcium. So they added the calcium, and then all of a sudden, in June of 1974, very specifically, we saw a huge spike in the number of people we found who had high calcium in their blood. So the signal is is high calcium in the bloodstream. Um, but there's not really, the patient doesn't show any symptoms of that. It's just through a blood test. It's through a blood test. So usually people don't know they have it. Now, if you talk to a surgeon, they'll tell you if you ask enough questions, everybody has problems. But <laughs> the truth is, is most people don't come to their doctor saying, I think I have a calcium problem. The truth is, is most of them have a high calcium level picked up on their blood test, probably 90, 85, 90% of the time. It's just a high blood calcium level. And then their doctor or their uh, provider sees that blood test and they'll say, oh, I think you could have this condition. Because if you walk into the office with a high calcium, the first diagnosis is primary hyperparathyroid, and the second diagnosis is primary. So we 
always say it's like the top 10 are going to be primary hyperthyroidism, and then there's going to be other less common conditions that cause high blood calcium. Now, if you're in the hospital, that's different. Then we worry about different conditions with the high blood calcium. So do you, um, you mentioned uh, osteoporosis is a, is a sign uh, of having uh, disorders with calcium metabolism. So in postmenopausal women, is this a routine blood test that they should be having? Should you have a routine calcium? Um, I think if you have osteoporosis, doing a blood calcium level would be recommended because the primary hyperparathyroidism in postmenopausal women is very common. Now, before menopause, men and women have an equal frequency of the disease. But for some reason that we don't quite understand, after menopause, the ratio is about 3 to 1. So the highest risk woman is going to be, you know, a 70-year-old female, or the highest risk patient is going to be a 70-year-old female. And if you think about that a little bit more, by the time you're 85 and you're a woman, you have about a 50-50 chance of having osteoporosis. So you happen to have two very common diseases. And the reason that's important to recognize is because if you do surgery and take care of that gland, then we know that bone density will improve as opposed to patients who have the disease who don't have surgery. Their bone density will generally stay stable. But we think that that improvement in bone density after surgery probably offers some benefit in reducing their risk of breaking bones. You're starting to hint at my next question, which was what's a treatment then for a parathyroid disorder? Right. So there's really the mainstay of treatment is going to be surgery. And so it's generally a very safe surgery. It's a low-risk surgery. The outcome at a center where you do a lot of these procedures is going to be 95% will be cured of the disease. So it's pretty easy to fix. The surgery itself isn't a uh, long surgery. It's not a high-risk surgery. So that's the treatment. Um, what do they do? Do they remove it? or are you? What do you do? Right. So typically what we do is we uh, you just remove that single disease gland and the other three go on and do their work and life is good. Three do the work of four? Yeah. You only really need about a half a gland, to be honest. You can get by with a little bit of parathyroid, but not without any parathyroid. That's a real problem. So, Dr. Wemmers, we talked about hyperparathyroidism. What about hypoparathyroidism when it's not working as well as it should be? So hypoparathyroidism is a condition where you lose parathyroid hormone secretion. You lose your parathyroid glands. And it can be due to uh, genetic causes, which are rare. It can be due to certain diseases where you get infiltration of the parathyroid gland, and those are uncommon diseases. By far, the most common cause of low parathyroid hormone is what we call iatrogenic, which means somebody damages them when they do surgery. And the most common is if you're having thyroid surgery for thyroid cancer or maybe overactive thyroid or a big goiter, and they damage those parathyroid glands. Now, we do have a treatment for that. Parathyroid hormone was the only hormone. We didn't really have a replacement. We have thyroid hormone, which, by the way, was discovered at the Mayo Clinic on Christmas Day in 1914. You probably heard that. Mm-hmm. Cortisol, which was also cortisone, which was also discovered here. But parathyroid hormone never had a replacement until just within the last year. And so now we have parathyroid hormone that can be given as a shot under the skin every day. The problem is, is it's like $88,000 a year. Oh, so, so we do everything we can, you know, to not have to use that. And it depends on how severe the disease is. So typically we'll give them calcium or vitamin D to fix that. There are situations where you can get high amounts of parathyroid hormone in the blood, but it's not because you have a disease of the parathyroid glands. We call that secondary hyperparathyroidism. That's kind of like 
the furnace in your house where the temperature in the house gets cold, the furnace turns on. If your body recognizes that your calcium balance is a little bit off and you need more calcium, parathyroid hormone level will turn on or go up. So uh, if you don't take enough calcium in your diet, for example, 99% of your calcium is in your bones, then your parathyroid hormone levels will go up, and you'll mobilize calcium to go from the bone into the bloodstream, and your body will use that bone to protect your blood calcium from going low. We also see that in people who have kidney failure where the kidneys can't make enough of the active form of vitamin D. And so there's many things that cause high parathyroid hormone, that's, and your parathyroid goes up, but it's the way your body should respond. Just kind of like you're running, your heart rate goes up or any other physiologic response. Well, thanks, Dr. Wormers, for filling us in on the parathyroid glands and how parathyroid problems are treated. Dr. Robert Wormers is an endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.